It's about diversity in all aspects and making sure that that is captured and feeds into the research enterprise. Because I just can guarantee that the more people that you bring into the science enterprise, the better the output will be. Are you working in research, trying to do the best science you can? Are you a team leader, a research assistant, postdoc, PhD student, or any other type of scientist? Are you looking for a place where you can sit, relax, and listen to inspiring people? Well, we have good news for you. You've just found what you're looking for. Hi, everybody. My name is Renaud Pourpre. And I am Jonathan Weitzman. Welcome, Welcome to, to The, the Lonely Pipet. Helping scientists do better science. My name is Fiona Watt. I study stem cells and the process of self-renewal at the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine at King's College London. And I'm absolutely delighted to share my tips with the Lonely Pipette. Fiona Watt obtained her PhD, or what's actually called a DPhil, at the University of Oxford with Henry Harris. And then she carried out her postdoc research in Howard Green's lab at MIT in Cambridge, uh, America. She established her first lab at the Kennedy Institute of Rheumatology in London and then moved to the London Research Institute. From 2006 to 2012, she was the Deputy Director of the Cancer Research UK Cambridge Research Institute and the Deputy Director of the Wellcome Trust Centre for Stem Cell Research at the University of Cambridge. She moved to King's College back in London in 2012 to take up her current position as the Director of the Centre for Stem Cells and Regenerative Medicine. Her lab works on the interplay between internal and external factors in the regulation of stem cell fate. In 2018, Fiona became the Executive Chair of the Medical Research Council, the MRC, in the UK. And she has received many awards. I won't list them all, but she's a Fellow of the Royal Society, a member of the National Academy of Sciences, and was the editor of the Journal of Cell Science for almost 20 years. Fiona, thanks very much for coming to give tips to the Lonely Pipette. So Fiona, I'm going to start to ask you a question. And again, I think I have said it many times now, but this is what we call the starter questions. And it's all about getting more information about your origin story, being a scientist. So I, I want to ask you how you decided to become a scientist. I have only ever wanted to be a scientist. Uh, so... I can't remember a time when I was in any doubt about what I wanted to do. I, I could talk about my childhood, but I, I do remember something which came to me recently. When I was quite small, uh, I remember exploring a little pond and I saw what I thought was a crocodile in it. And considering this <laughs> was Scotland and the crocodile was about 10 centimetres Uh, when I went rushing to tell my parents, they said, no, I don't think that was a crocodile. And I remember being really cross that they didn't believe me. So my solution to this problem was to go and catch the crocodile. And it turned <laughs> out to be a newt. Um, but I think it, yeah, it shows that I was a hardwired scientist because I was spending my time looking in ponds and probably says something about uh, how I deal with um, 
people who say no <laughs> or disagree with me. <laughs> so you bring them proof directly. This is it's like a crocodile. <laughs> Here, here's the data. Now tell me it's not a crocodile. <laughs> so what, what do you think you would have become if you, if you didn't become a biologist? What would you have been? I suppose I I like solving problems. Yes, a, another problem solving profession. <laughs> but really, <laughs> there was really nothing else I wanted to do. I see what you mean by solving problems. Uh, before I became a scientist, I was kind of in, a, in another science, like being a, a doctor to check the data in another way and try to guess or to, to tell them, here's the disease or here's what is going wrong with, you, with your health. What about like investigation? Have you ever felt attracted to these kind of jobs like I have been, for example? I also thought detective. I was kind of <laughs> into detective, like movies and stuff. I, I, do, I do remember my father saying to me that he thought that being a doctor would be a more secure profession. I think being a doctor is completely different from being a scientist. But since I'm passionate about medical research, I could see the sense in training in medicine first and then taking the route to being a scientist. Um, but at the time, I knew that I wouldn't be very good at following orders. And I, it seemed to me a waste of time because it would take so long to be a doctor when you could just be a scientist quickly. So you decided to go and be a, a crocodile hunter. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so throughout your long and very successful career, have there been times when like moments of doubt when you when you thought about leaving science? No, I, I've uh, there've been moments in my career when I've been desperately unhappy, and I have changed my situation. But it's it's really very much about uh, this is what I want to do. So, so throughout your career, how did you choose um, which questions to work on? Well, I suppose going back to my childhood, um, I liked the idea of being a marine biologist. Uh -huh. but, but I realized that... Crocodile again. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it was more that Scotland is not the warmest country in the world. And I could imagine spending a lot of time freezing cold. And as I learned about cell biology, I really loved that. So I think at the level of cells, I found when I was taught as an undergraduate, you know, I was taught by some of the most famous developmental biologists in the world, like uh, John Gurdon. But I always thought that developmental biology was a bit complicated. And I wasn't that interested in how an embryo develops. I was much more interested in the ongoing process by which your body maintains itself. And that interest has stayed with me throughout my life. I happened to go to MIT and work with Howard Green and work on his system of culturing human epidermis in a dish. And that's a problem that I've diverted from a little bit from time to time. But it's amazing how the problems that uh, I was interested in, even as a postdoc, have been rewarding to revisit over the years. And most recently, with the advent of all the single cell RNA sequencing data through the Human Cell Atlas, I've really been able to go back and test some of the experimental models and say, well, how does this really match up to real life? So, so you, uh, the same question, but with new tools. I don't like that interpretation because I think some people are guilty of doing the same thing again and again, but with more expensive tools. Uh, for me, it's about understanding better, particularly how cells differentiate, 
and increasingly trying to harvest or uh, use that information in a practical way to do something that might improve human health. Okay, so so you've combined that in, in as being the director of uh, an institute that does both stem cell biology and thinks about how this might be applied to regenerative medicine. Can you tell us how you took that decision to become the director of that institute? So I, re- I reached a point in my career when I was you know, I was in Cambridge. I wanted to. Um, uh, I, I suppose I was unhappy there. And normally, when I make moves, I've I've tended to just move. It's like right, got to move. Um, but this time, because because of the ages of my school kids, I couldn't just move. And I was fortunate to have three very different job offers simultaneously. Wow! That really gave me the chance over quite an intensive period to say, what do I want? So. I wanted actually to be in London because I love being in a big city. Uh, I wanted to start completely from scratch and I wanted the freedom to create something which would not only be uh, it, lots of good scientists and uh, doctors coming together, but I wanted to design the architecture to make it uh, a space where people would collaborate Moving to King's was perfect for me because I've always done a lot of work in collaboration with dentists and dermatologists who are not, they're not very um, big specialties in Britain. And Guy's Hospital happens to have people there that I already knew and collaborated with. So it was just the right place for what I needed at that particular time in my career. How did you know, for example, that you you were ready for it. What what was the, the signals that tell you, okay, that's the moment to go? Well, we have to go back to my earlier career. So I was only a postdoc for two years when I got my first lab. And I got that because I went to visit my old PhD advisor in Oxford one Christmas. And he said, oh, I've got this job you might be interested in, uh, in a place called the Kennedy Institute for Rheumatology. They're looking for a cell biologist. So that's the only job I applied for. I got it. It was a good place to start. But the day that my position was made permanent was the day I knew I needed to get out because if I knew if I stayed there for 30 or 40 years, it was not going to be good. Uh, <laughs> so so then I, I gave up tenure for a tenure track job in a cancer institute. I was very, very happy there. But at some point, I was more entrepreneurial and wanting to do other things. Uh, and probably I stayed there for 20 years. I should have left sooner. But I had twins in 2002. And as a scientist, I don't like to change more than one variable in my life at a time. And twins was like... <laughs> two variables. <laughs> <laughs> two variables. So I don't think I've answered your question properly. But for me, it's all about being in the right place to do what I want to do at this particular time in my career. If you don't feel that this is going in the way you wanted, you would just move, as you said. This is yes. also something... But, but I don't think that that is necessarily the right strategy because mm-hmm. I have... Well, the, the head of the Kennedy Institute is uh, a wonderful colleague of mine, uh, Fiona Powery. And I realized that if I'd stayed there, it would have been fine. Mm-hmm. The Cancer Institute is now part of the Francis Crick, which would have been, it's an amazing place to work. And I have plenty of friends and colleagues who stayed in the same place forever. So mm-hmm. it's just, uh, maybe it's a character flaw that I have, or just in my nature that at some point, if I, if I can change things, I will. But if I 
don't think it's worth it. I just tend to move on. So you jumped into this new adventure being a director and there is a really important question we wanted to ask you because this is kind of a big deal. Maybe it's what is the first big decision you made there as, as a director? <laughs> I think for me, the decision to take the job was the big one. I mean, I still feel bad about this. I, I honestly told the lab that we were going to move and that the, the labs would be ready in a few months. It turned out to be two years. And so we were doing research literally in a building site. It's included a, a period of standoff with some of the previous occupants of the space where they essentially barricaded themselves into part of the space, made it rather difficult for the builders. Uh, and we were dealing with floods, that, you know, constant floods coming through the ceiling. And so uh, the, the biggest thing for me probably at the start was the day when the space was really usable and it was clear that people really wanted to come and establish their labs there. That was really good. But I think the bit, compared to... You know, the decision to go, I knew exactly what I wanted to do. And from then on, the it was more tackling adversity than making big decisions, I think. Is there anything you learned as a director that you would have liked to know where you were a young scientist? Um, I think I, I didn't learn it from being a director, but I've learned it from uh, working for the Medical Research Council because I, the way I run my lab and the way I run the centre is I try to be very collegial. It's not hierarchical in my lab and in the centre. It's all about the ideas, the willingness to collaborate, to share data, to share the mission. But in, the Medical Research Council is a funding body. And I realized that in an organization like that, you do have to have structures. People don't feel comfortable unless they know, you know, the line management structure, what the goals are. And so I wonder whether with hindsight, there are times when my style of being very collegial and open and experimental might have caused some disquiet to people. We want to talk to you a little bit about about mentoring. So uh, and mentors. So you mentioned Howard Green and Henry Harris. So you were in these these great labs from the beginning. What are the mentoring practices that you picked up either from those labs or from others that you have then used in your lab as a, a mentor? Well, it's funny. I I felt at the time that Henry Harris didn't mentor me at all. He he um, used to show up periodically to tell me about his, his latest great experiment, <laughs> and then would go off. Um, and I remember thinking at the time, when I get PhD students, I'm going to really look after them. But you know, time rolls on, and I I can see the merits of Henry's approach <laughs> because. So I suppose I went to, to thinking that I'd been neglected and wanting to be a good mentor to thinking, well, Henry was right. But now, <laughs> I, but now I can see it's obvious that we should be training PhD students who are going to infiltrate all aspects of society for, for the good of society. And it's very important not to make them feel that they're no good because they just didn't happen to choose a career in academic science. And that's that's one thing I've really learned. So you're not just training scientists, you're training citizens. Well, more than citizens, people, uh, I mean, for example, I would dearly, dearly like it if the British Parliament had more 
members of parliament who had science degrees, it, just people who understand evidence, risk. They understand a debate as being something where you reach a consensus in the end rather than a political grandstanding. And I've also found that um, careers are not linear anymore. And we have to be thinking about, you know, uh, I might do some years in this type of environment. I might switch to another and then be confident to go back into something else again. So I think, I think mentoring really is about supporting the person in their goals with you at the time and being available over subsequent years to think of them if they, if there's an opportunity for them to offer advice. Uh, really to, it's a bit like a family, I think, to be there for them. Can, can you think of some bad mentoring advice that you've heard from other people that you... Uh, well, I think what's bad is when a professor tells a young scientist that there is no career beyond academic research. And they say that because they've not seen anything else. So I, I think that's really bad. Um, I don't know if this is bad mentoring or not, but... I think maybe I've been guilty of being too enthusiastic and supportive, saying, yes, of course, you can do it. When perhaps in my heart, I know there's a better route for that person. But I would still probably defend myself by saying, if it's what you want to do, it's much better to try it and then do something later than to talk yourself out of it. It's interesting because you, 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 you talked about scientists going to other career out of academia. Do you, do you keep uh, some relation with some of your trainees that went out? And how do you think this teaching they have is really useful for them and, and for the society? Well, I shamelessly exploit those people. <laughs> I, I force them to give uh, talks in our stem cells at lunch seminar series. And that's really useful because they, uh, when they talk about the things they've done, it's much more believable to the audience than if I say that's a career opportunity. But I must say that these, these people, my alumni, are also very adept at essentially coming fishing in our pool of talent. And, and then you start to poaching. see job office poaching. Yes. <laughs> uh, but that's good as well, you know? Yeah, this is, this is a kind of, uh, I take a bit from, from both sides and we try to, to make more collaboration maybe and, and to get the best of the two sides. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. And I think there, there are lots of opportunities now of, do, of doing research in partnership with a company or just different ways of doing research. And I, I find that really interesting. We talk about collaboration uh, right now, and you are known to have launched a highly successful program in, uh, that enabled clinicians to participate in research. Why did you start this program? What was the underlying idea uh, that led to this initiative? Um, it's a program that I'm very proud of, actually. It's, we call it CARP, Clinical Academic Research Partnerships. Although when I first pitched this internally in the MIC, the initials were CRAP. And we realized that I, I could see that some people, that was how they That's what some the people thought about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so it was really based on seeing what the challenges are 
if you are a clinician and you want to participate in research, I saw that big time in Cambridge and I could also see it in King's. But at King's, I had the opportunity to have a lot of conversations with clinicians and also start to see clinicians who, instead of doing the conventional route for a successful clinician scientist career, wanted to do something a bit differently. So it was something that I road tested with a lot of colleagues before I launched it. We didn't know when we launched it if anybody would apply. <laughs> um, we, we've run two rounds now and the third one is about to launch. So there were things that we didn't have right at first. My, my sort of fantasy successful person for this is someone who uh, is a very distinguished, I don't know, surgeon who suddenly decides that it would be really good to crystallize a protein in the complement cascade and goes off to a research institute and does that and then goes back into their clinical work. But actually, what we're seeing is younger clinicians who are keen to do this. And then the detailed rules about when you could take this opportunity, we had to refine. But for me, it's, it's part of, I suppose, co-creation of research problems. The, the number of scientists who think that they're setting off with a very important cancer research program, only to discover many years later that it's, it's never going to work because there isn't the need or it, it's sort of elementary stuff. It's like trying to design a bicycle without really thinking of the practicalities of the expense or how it's going to work. So more generally, getting as many people involved in co-creation of research projects and execution is, is something I'm really keen on at the moment. And does this go beyond the, the biomedical? Do you, do you, are you a believer in interdisciplinary research? Why, why is that important for science? So I, I'm a believer in extending this program. The other groups of people that I would like to see involved include nurses and midwives and social workers. But that's different from interdisciplinary yeah, research. Yeah. So uh, the co-creation is important. As for interdisciplinary research, that's a, an expression that I think is overused. I've done a lot of it and it's difficult. And where it works is when you have a very specific problem that you and your collaborator in another discipline want to solve. It's an equal priority for you and the time is right to achieve that. But it's more an art, I think, than just specifying you will do interdisciplinary research. But do you think, do you think basic scientists or biologists could benefit from more uh, interaction with clinicians and more collaboration with clinicians? Oh, for sure, for sure. But I, I suppose I don't see that as interdisciplinary. Yeah. I think in my book, interdisciplinary would be collaborating with chemists or mathematicians or engineers who work in biomaterials and the other stuff is more yeah is more about getting real about solving biological problems so for for many years in addition to running the lab and being director you were the editor for i think almost 20 years of the journal of cell science so i always associate you with that journal so so what made you get into involved in in publishing in the first place and stay for so long as uh, why was that important to you? Um, well, I published my first paper in the Journal of Cell Science and Henry Harris was one of the editors. So I was asked, probably because of Henry, to join the editorial board. 
And I really like the vision. You know, it's a charity, so the profits uh, get spent on biology. To be honest, at that time, when I had a massive mortgage, they would pay for me to have a car. And that was a big deal. It sort of changed over over the years. Um, and then it became a platform for experimenting in science publishing. It was a time of huge change. I remember having to explain to the directors of the company, including John Gurdon, that we needed to go to an online publishing platform. Um, it was just very difficult to explain that to these people. So I did a submission to another journal online and I took screenshots <laughs> and I printed them out. And it was a bit like, you know, Bob Dylan in that, uh, you know, I can't remember the thing where he's got the, the posters and he's peeling them off. And I was saying, and now you do this and this and that. And I found that really interesting. And in fact, my co-conspirator for many years in the Journal of Cell Science was a man called Richard Sever. And I was brokenhearted when he left to join Cold Spring Harbor. But he has now got me involved in preprint service. So I'm on the advisory board of BioArchive and MedArchive. And I just find it fascinating. How, how do you share data? How do you, yeah, I, th I think science publishing is just very interesting. It, I always say to my students that your experiment isn't finished until you've published it. I don't really care how prestigious the journal is. I just think it should be a good piece of work and it should be out. And, and when I left uh, Journal of Cell Science, because I really didn't think I could do any more, uh, I jumped ship to be deputy editor of eLife, which Randy Sheckman started. And that was such fun, so interesting and so radical. Um, I really enjoyed that. So, so, so we hear a lot, a lot of criticisms of, of the publishing system and that the, the system is broken uh, and and needs some kind of changes though those changes are not very clear how how do you feel about that so elife is one of the journals or websites or whatever it is <laughs> that has been trying to that has been trying to pioneer new changes how how do you feel about about these changes so um the thing i liked most about elife was the consultation amongst the peer reviewers so if there are three reviewers they will submit their review anonymously, but the authors receive a single decision letter. And of course, the identity of the three reviewers is known to one another. Now, of course, that can lead to bad behavior and has on a couple of occasions. But by and large, it's very positive as a reviewer to know that Jonathan Weitzman picked up something that Fiona Watt didn't. And Jonathan Weitzman was completely wrong about something else. And I can, you know, we, we, that, that process is really good. It also makes peer review collaborative. Exactly. And f I mean, a big thing for authors is I, I, I'm speaking in the present tense, but obviously I haven't worked for eLife for a couple of years, but the, the certainty that if you do these things, however long it takes you to revise the paper, you know, that your paper will be accepted. And, and the thing that just kills scientists is they submit a paper, you know, it's all the usual stuff. It gets bounced around the different journals. They get referees' comments. They work for six or nine months to address them, and then the paper is rejected again. And I just think that's really poor. So 
I think um, journals like eLife have done a good job. Clearly, open access publishing is important. And so the question is, what next? Uh, I know that um, a number of people like Howard Hughes, Medical Institute, the Wellcome Trust, others are trying to push the boundaries in other ways. I personally don't see the point of publishing the referees' reports of a paper that's been accepted. I would rather, on my own website, publish the reviews of my rejected papers. (laughs) (laughs) This is not popular. Then there's the issue of uh, the preprints, where initially it was a complicated market. Um, BioArchive really came into its own when it got funding from Chan Zuckerberg, and then launching MedArchive. Who who would have known a year ago the volume of papers going through there? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it it raises serious questions. So, BioArchive and MedArchive normally would just publish stuff unless it's libelous. But it's irresponsible to publish preprints on quack COVID treatments. You can't do that. And then equally, uh, now speaking as a funder of COVID research, you you can't wait at the moment for a paper to undergo peer review and be published in The Lancet. Mm -hmm. So it's a very, I don't know how it's going to land, (laughs) but it's a really interesting time. And there are other things. There's a a journal called Science Matters, which I don't know that much about, but I like the idea that you publish a single figure, single piece of data, because especially for, um, you know, for whatever reason, you might start a piece of work and you might decide that you're not going to take it further. You might have a master's student or someone who has done something nice, but that's it. So, yeah. so the idea of, of publishing smaller pieces of work, um, I think is an interesting one. And there are a number of ways in which that is, is happening. I feel concerned by that because during my PhD, we, we, we had a tons of, of, I think, good data that need to be more investigated, but this needs money, time, people. Yeah. And sometimes the, 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 the story of the lab has to stop at a moment for a topic and, and, and switch to another. And th- this would definitely be good to not lose all this time and work. It's like, okay, I'm not going to use it, but now maybe I can share it and some people can just look at it and go further with this. Yeah, I really agree. And I found, um, in the last few years that uh, I think many people find this, that you have a PhD student who does a good piece of work, submits it to a journal, gets their PhD, the reviews come back, and the person isn't around to do those. And the trouble with that is that it sort of distorts the work of others in the lab. I've taken to having a couple of quite frank discussions with students where I've said, you know, I know that so-and-so in the lab has volunteered to do more experiments once you've left, but is that that's not really the way I want to go because then these projects take on a life of their own. You know, different labs work in very different ways. You could have everybody working on the same project. But I think if you've done a piece of work that you'd like people to know about, you should do that. And you also don't want to distort the literature by, you know, it's like just dashing off poor experiments to finish a paper to get it published in a high-impact journal. Great. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> it's, no, it's really interesting to have this kind of thoughts about, about the publishing yeah. system because this is 
super actual. This is more than we... This yeah. is in the mind of all scientists nowadays. So yeah. it's good to have the, the, your thoughts on it. And, uh, yeah, but it must be discoverable. And so if you can't find it on a preprint server or in PubMed, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. And of course, there are all these predatory journals out there. Before we move to the brick, we have uh, another topic we wanted to address with you because we know that women in science is an important topic for you. And you are the first woman to lead the MRC since its foundation. How do you feel about that? Uh, I just I want to start by saying that I was really sad yesterday to hear that Zena Werb died. Oh. So Zena was a she was a very oh, wow. famous know. cell biologist in at UCSF, and she was she was dynamite. Unbelievably, she died at the age of seventy five. I, I thought she never aged. That generation of women really they suffered a lot. Uh, well, I think women still suffer a lot, but they were the pioneers. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you could name people of her generation around the world who were incredibly supportive to me. So I didn't have female role models close at hand, but there were people like Zena or Bridget Hogan, just to name two people who I sort of knew that I could talk to about what was happening. We, they would help me. So now, um, you know, being the first woman who's head of the MRC, I would say that's that's good. But the issues now, I think, are much broader, particularly, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement. It's about diversity in all aspects and making mm -hmm. sure that that is captured and feeds into the research enterprise. Because I just can guarantee that the more people that you bring into the science enterprise, the better the output will be. That, that's what I would say. The thing that um, really concerns me at the moment is the way whistleblowers are treated when they call out bad behavior. I mean, the examples I can think of are women, but it affects men, people from different ethnic backgrounds. And we really have to move to a fairer, clearer way of reporting incidents making sure that the investigation is not conducted by somebody who's internal to the university. Mm -hmm. um, human resources departments have a wonderful tendency to sweep things under the carpet because ultimately they're responsible for the reputation of the university or whatever it is. That's where I put a lot of thinking and efforts at the moment. One book that I read during lockdown was, I, I can see it in my office, it's called Whistleblower by Susan Fowler. Oh, yeah. And she talks about being a whistleblower at Uber. But the thing in that book which really struck me was when she was uh, a student in a university, she ended up sucked into being involved in somebody who had mental health problems. What I found so dispiriting about that was that that story is one that I could have told 40 years ago. And I just wonder how often young scientists are put in situations where they just don't have the expertise to deal with it. So that's a bit of a rambling response, but we, I think we've got to get real. Mm -hmm. Do you think being a woman has affected your journey to the top? Oh, yeah. Well, I don't know if it's because I'm a woman or because I'm not a very <laughs> clubby kind of person. 
<laughs> I'm sure it could have been an easier journey if I'd kept quiet. Um, Can you think of a particular moment? You don't have to go super precise, but when you where you have felt for you or for somebody else gender inequality in science? Yeah, I think um, I've known situations where I haven't been promoted, probably because I was a woman. I've seen senior male colleagues take ideas uh, and present them as their own. It, it's just never very comfortable to be the only woman in the room. And in fact, I would say that if if there's a meeting and there's more than five or six people, it just isn't right to have a, a single woman there because the dynamics of the conversation are quite different. And, it, and equally, whereas I used to absolutely love surreptitious drinks in the bar with Zena when I happen to be in San Francisco, I don't feel comfortable anymore going for all women social events related to science because that's just like the old boys club, only now it's, it's women. So. So, so, so you raised the issue of, of whistleblowers and you, you mentioned the, the book that you've just read. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, when I was a student, uh, an undergraduate, I read Carl Jurassic's Cantor's Dilemma, which is like written many, many years ago. Yeah. Uh, about the same issue, how, 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 to, how younger scientists can call out uh, when they see things, whatever, whether it's sexism or racism. What do you think we can do about that? What are the practical steps that the community can make? I'll tell you one thing not to do. So our, yeah, our university said that it was important to have a safe and anonymous way to report incidents. Completely agreed. But what happened was that a clear plastic box with the lid appeared next to the printer. And so, of course, people would say, oh, look, there's another, there's another message in there. They would open the box and they would read it. <laughs> <laughs> so that initiative didn't last for very long. I think, um, I don't know how it is in other countries, but I've seen the process of complaining over a number of years. And often what will happen is a young woman will come and in confidence tell me about her concerns. And I will say, There are these things that we can do. And typically, this person will say, no, I don't want to do anything. I feel so much better for talking to you. I, I don't want you to do anything except write me a reference because I'm going to get out of here. So to actually support the person to make and document a complaint, is, it's, it's putting a lot of pressure on somebody. And then making sure that the complaint isn't compartmentalized or diminished is important. Uh, so I think there are sort of structural things that we have to do, but I think it's important that people shouldn't be afraid. And and where somebody has beha behaved badly over many years, it, it will always be because the, the rumors have been there, but it's never turned into a fo formal complaint. And in the end, that's not really fair on the person who is, you know, the complaints are about, because without uh, anything to respond to, Uh, there's no means of moving on. And also, I think the sanctions for misbehavior need to be very clear. They shouldn't be made up on a case-by-case -case basis. Mm -hmm. So I would really like it if we could get our act together there. So, so the Me Too movement has raised the, the, the question of, of sexual inequality. As the chairman of the MRC, you, you ran a workshop on diversity And there's much less discussion. So what was the origin of that initiative and, and what did you learn from it? The origin of the initiative was that every day going to the lab, I share the lift with the dental students. And they are 
an ethnically diverse bunch. And it's, I think, one of the best medical, uh, dental schools in Europe. But then I look at in the PhD students in my lab and they're white. So I thought, why don't we just find out what, instead of treating it as a problem, we must have more uh, minority ethnic PhD students, just ask them what they want. And so that was the origin of it. And then at the end, we, we jotted down things they wanted to say. And then a group of them, I can't remember, quite a few of them co-authored a blog that we published in eLife. And one of the messages was, don't, don't talk to us about doing a PhD. Talk to our parents. You know, <laughs> tell my father that it's, that it's all right not to be a doctor. Tell my mother I can have, uh, I can be married and have kids and still do science. So, so a lot of social pressure at the end. I think it's about uh, cultural issues. Actually, the numbers that we looked at prior to that workshop showed a healthy representation of BAME undergraduates and master's students and a drop-off at the PhD level. So another problem with uh, PhDs is that the, the scheme that uh, I run, which is a Wellcome Trust-funded one, We would typically have two or three hundred applicants for six places. And there you're not just looking for spectacular undergraduate results. You're looking for somebody who's gone to Bob Weinberg's lab as an intern over the summer or gone and done something like that. And that is where I think it can become unfair because if you have been working in a supermarket in your vacations rather than, you know, going to work in a lab, your CV isn't going to look so good. So there are a lot of things that we need to look at. The, the other thing, um, you know, I think a lot of organizations have made strong statements about Black Lives Matter, but really we have to move that into concrete actions. I think actually, particularly in medicine, the representation of minority ethnic backgrounds is pretty good if you look at them overall. But if you look at doctors from uh, Afro-Caribbean origin, it's not good. So you have to be thinking about the best kinds of interventions for different people. And in fact, at our group meeting this morning, we were talking about what we should do. And we said that we don't want to, we're not going to be complacent because it's obviously easy to say, oh, yeah, we're, we're fine. Um, we don't want to duplicate other activities. Um, and maybe the best thing we can do is start, start a conversation. One of the things that I found useful is, you know, in, in growing up, if, if you were a scientist, you were supposed to have no religious beliefs at all. That was the kind of Richard Dawkins blind watchmaker thing. But if, if you don't talk about religion, you miss culture. And I think having discussions about how one's upbringing has shaped one's belief. It's not the same as religion, but it becomes, I think, uh, it's, it, of course, because I'm British, you know, the British will always retreat into embarrassment about discussing <laughs> any matters like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think that discussions are really important. Um, I can remember a few years back, someone who, who worked for me, his mother died very sadly He was from a, a country in, in Africa and he explained the process of having her burial and the grieving. And this is a, a process which takes several weeks. And I think if he had just come and said, I need 
this number of weeks time off because my mother's had died, I would have thought that was you know, understandable, but it seemed a long time. But having the discussion about the rituals associated with death in all cultures and in all religions, I think is a good basis for an understanding. So we, we tried to do that. Um, we have a picture of the Pope up in our lab, uh, positioned to help the devout Catholic postdocs. We have a picture of Howard Green in a silver fl- pr- frame, <laughs> blessing the cell culture lamps. And just ha- having discussions about culture and religion are really important. I think that's a very important point that we, we tend to forget the cultures that people come from. The, the most exciting class that I teach is actually on stem cells because uh, when we when we start to talk about stem cells and origins of life and then you get, you get much more debate among the students than, than in class about molecular biology. And I remember very heated debates once between a on the first row was a, a Muslim woman covered up and on the back row was someone who had very extreme views about about how everything should be allowed and how, how the students engaged with each other was really uh, yeah. because they could assume their own culture. Yeah, it's really important. We're going to take a short break there. Thanks for the first half. And when we come back, we're going to hear more about Fiona. <laughs> hey, folks, don't run away. You're listening to The Lonely Piper with Renaud Pourpre and Jonathan Weissman, where our goal is to help scientists do better science. If you're enjoying the show and you want to learn more, you can follow us on Twitter at Lonely Pipette. And please share the podcast with your friends. If you don't want to miss any of our future episodes, you can subscribe to our mailing list and join our community. Click on the subscription link on our Twitter account. It's as simple as that. Take a few moments to get more tips from the Lonely Pipette. So you've got your cup of tea. We had a tea break. It's actually tea time. It is tea time. So yeah. So so welcome back. Thanks for all the advice you that you gave us, all the tips from the from the the first half. And in the second half, we'd like to to hear a bit more about about who is Fiona. What? So <laughs> so maybe we'll start with a with a, a general question that I'm sure comes up a lot. So you you're executive chair of the MRC, you're director of an institute, you're head of a lab, you're a mother, you were editor for many years. What are the the secrets you have to, to manage all those things at the same time? Well, I, I wouldn't say that I do all those things as well as if I did fewer things. Uh-huh. But I suppose I've done multiple things because it interests me. You know, I, I'm really interested in science publishing in the way science is carried out. I suppose I have this skill that when when I finish work, I, I generally don't worry about it. So particularly when the kids were small, you know, I would be like 100% science when I was at the lab, 100% family uh, at home. It, it's been a bit different during lockdown but in a way it's been better because I'd never have seen the twins so much if we weren't all in the house together. So so I noticed this morning on the email so you sent me a confirmation email and on the bottom of your signature it says there's no need to respond to my emails outside <laughs> your normal working hours. So so what what's that all about? Where does that come from? Uh, that comes from pre-lockdown traveling a lot. So I would often uh, if I was in on the west coast of the States, I'd be working 
during daylight hours, but my email messages would be arriving in the middle of the night in Britain. That's not really an issue for scientists, but I think for the Medical Research Council staff, it's really not fair to be doing that. Ironically, now, most of my emails are during working hours, (laughs) but um, during lockdown, people are having to work very different working patterns to accommodate their caring responsibilities. So I think everybody is, is, is used to odd emails and people working at weekends so that they're not working during the day. I don't know how the world of work is going to look after this, actually. I think I should add that because I, I do a lot of my emailing late at night only because then the kids are in bed. and But I don't need an answer at two o'clock in the morning. I just I need know. to get it out. <laughs> but that's yeah. Uh, good. Yeah. So I know in some professions, there is a real pressure that when the email comes in, it has to be answered. I, I don't think that's right. Um, and it's very much a case of I'm emptying my inbox, but that doesn't mean that you have to respond. It's it's true that sometimes people feel pressure that they have to, but you you look like you want really to separate things, right? This is something important to you? Uh, I just, uh, I actually worry about things quite a lot. And I, I don't think I could live if I was worried about the kids all the time I was in the lab or vice versa. These have been very challenging times, actually, uh, for the MRC and also for the lab, but just because of the political situation and, and now the COVID pandemic. And just trying to have some equilibrium in that has really I've had to take very conscious choice just to you know say I'm good at writing lists and I say well these are the things that I can do Uh, it doesn't matter if I don't get to the end of my list but just try to compartmentalize time. Is it a practical tips you will uh, give to our listeners like apply (laughs) it now even if you don't finish your list but just start with this for example? Yeah, I think if, you know, if you're really worried about a lot of things that need to be done, it doesn't hurt to write them down. And they, actually, my, my top tip is <laughs> if you have a list, when you've done something, cross it out, because that shows you've made progress. Um, and it feels good. <laughs> it, it, it feels good. And especially, you know, when you have a lot of, you're working on a lot of different papers in the lab, I just keep a table of the work that I think we should be getting to submit. Is it submitted? Is it revised? Is it accepted? And then I take it off that. So I think rather than panicking, because it would be easy to panic, because you say, I just don't know where to start, to try to get some control over it. And I do all the obvious stuff. Like I don't read emails while watching TV. I read books, make an effort to get exercise, things like that. What, do, what does your morning routine look like when, when, you, when you get out of bed? When you, yeah. Now. Or- uh, no, <laughs> in, no, in normal times. Do you, do you, have, do you have special ritual or what, what, is, what does it look like? I, I don't think it's a ritual, but I get up, uh, let the dog out in the back garden, feed the dog, feed the cats, have breakfast, have a shower, get dressed, poke the kids if they need to be um, forced out of bed. Uh, in the old days I used to travel to work on the underground so I would then just go to the underground station but where I live now I rely on the overground and so I always have to have the timetables in my mind (laughs) so it's like you know 
what what am I which train am I trying to get to that that sort of thing then ideally I love to read the newspapers uh, while I'm traveling but my journey is quite short <laughs> what's something about yourself that people might be surprised to learn uh, I think people might be surprised that I'm Scottish because <laughs> you don't sound Scottish I don't sound Scottish but I look Scottish and I have a <laughs> Scottish name I think that that my upbringing actually like anyone's upbringing affected my values and there's a that is an important part of who I am I would say what, what are Scottish values what is that oh well I think growing up in a in the Church of Scotland. So that's a form of Christianity, which is Presbyterian, um, very focused on hard work, not being hierarchical. Generally, you know, you've got to be really good and you'll probably end up in hell anyway. That, that kind of approach, <laughs> that, that mindset. So you, 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 you took those, those va values to your lab now. It's, it's something that you, you still have. I think so, but I, I, um, That's why I think it's good talking to people about where they come from and what their background is, what what, what their mm. family situation was like. It, it's the starting point for a very interesting conversation. Like we are doing right now, yeah. for example. Yeah. <laughs> to, to go a bit more deeper, we like to go on the field of fears and challenges. If you can think a bit, if you add a major fear that you have had in your career... I think probably like most scientists, I fear failure. I have a terrible tendency not to celebrate success, but to focus on failure. And of course, the, the situations where you fail, where you don't get the grant or you don't get the job or you don't publish the paper, those often open up interesting new avenues. But no matter how much I tell people that, The fact of the matter is that I'm constantly driven by failure, not not doing the job properly. Um, yes, just underperforming. So, so you said before you do all these things, but you would maybe do them better if you didn't do all of them. How do you deal with that? Well, I'm quite good at stopping things. Yes, I, I don't feel uh, I'm doing too many things, but... I deal with it by saying, well, this thing is for a finite amount of time. Or if I'm going to do that thing, I'm going to have to stop this thing. And constantly thinking about what would be interesting to do next. And this is, this is the way how you, you choose to say yes to something and no to something else, right? Well. <laughs> <laughs> That's the theory. <laughs> My character flaw, one of them is that I tend to say yes first and think later. Um, <laughs> So that, that's led to many interesting adventures, but it, uh, some people will naturally say no, and I naturally say yes. Mm -hmm. Can you now think about a particular achievement you are the most proud of? Mm. Well, I suppose that I, I am proud that when I started working on stem cells, it was not a popular topic I came to it from a, a, an interest in cell adhesion. And cell adhesion was not a very popular topic. So I, I am proud that the things that I discovered early on, and actually many of the concepts that I came up with, have stood the test of time. So I, I do feel proud about that. I also get annoyed when people in my lab propose experiments, which we already published 20 years ago, <laughs> uh, you know, or just, yes, that, that, that that's just being grumpy. 
So you're not afraid of the risk that it can have the unpopular topics or, or, or matters? Well, the, the most innovative things we've done, usually we've submitted them to be published. They've been rejected as being not novel. And then at some point in the future, the field is really, uh, has really expanded. I sometimes think maybe I should have put more effort into championing it. But, but on the other hand, I, I couldn't complain uh, about lack of visibility because I've, I've always been able to attend conferences and write papers and write reviews. So I think it's just the, the, the way science goes. Now to finish with this part, what about the particular challenge that you overcame and that you can think and share with us and how did you overcame it? Oh, well... <laughs> Not an easy question, sure. <laughs> I think, yeah, I think leaving the Cancer Institute where I used to work after 20 years and essentially launching into an unknown environment, that was a challenge. I don't think that I got it right the first time. But as I said, when I moved to my present job, Rather than moving because I didn't want to be in an environment anymore, to I, I actively thought about what I wanted. I, I think that was a challenge that I overcame successfully, and it definitely made me um, braver. What advice would you give if you met yourself 20 years ago? <laughs> uh, probably I would have... Yeah, I, may, maybe to be more self-confident about my choices and maybe to be more open in sharing what I'm thinking about with my colleagues. Because it, in all of these things that I've done, I've tended to play it quite close to my chest. That's partly because certainly it, with the lab, I think it's really destabilizing if you go wandering in every other day and say, oh, I've had this job offer and I'm going to do that. That's not fair. But... I've noticed that colleagues tend to confide in me more than I confide in them. And I think it would have been better to have not felt so much that I am an island to uh, lent on other people more would have been good. We've called the, the podcast The Lonely Pipette. But, but often I wonder whether leaders in science, so group leaders, especially as a, they have so many responsibilities, are, uh, sometimes feel sort of lonely that they don't always have people to share or their, their doubts, their different choices with? No, I don't feel lonely. I, I'm very fortunate to have two or three really close female friends who are in different lines of work. and um, Not scientists. Not scientists. I, I remember back long ago before we had kids, my friend who is um, an art historian, we used to meet once a week and go swimming. And we would be swimming up and down and I would give her an unexpurgated account of the, you know, the, the stuff that was going on in my life. And she would do the same because, because she was never going to meet a bunch of scientists and I was certainly not going to meet a bunch of art historians. And so that ability to download uh, without worrying about what, what you say being um, shared with, uh, with other people or causing offense, that's, is a huge, huge source of um, comfort we are going to wrap up now because it's we, we have been quite a long time together and, <laughs> and we we have a, a, a really good amount of, of good advice and it was really really good to, to talk with you today and so where, where can people find out more about you and, and your work i've published a lot of p 
pieces about uh, science and I've, I do various blogs on my lab website and on the MIC website. Um, and I, I took to Twitter actually because I was so cross that some of the amazing research that the MIC was funding was just below the radar. I was just like, ah! (laughs) (laughs) And I've tried to be really, really uh, very measured in my tweeting. So we Um, note that your your tweet handle (laughs) is Fiona Watt MRC. (laughs) (laughs) That's because we... Uh, we have a lab Twitter account, but I've really enjoyed doing that. So if you want to know about MIC things or <laughs> other stuff, uh, you could find it there. Or our lab website has lots of stuff on it as well. And is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any closing remarks? I would just like to thank you for the tips about using Audacity. <laughs> uh, it's been really good. And I think your project is really good. And it's just a pleasure talking to you both. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Fiona. Thank, <laughs> All you. Right. thank you for your time. So that's it for this episode. Thank you for joining us at The Lonely Pipet. We hope that you learned something new, that something resonated with your own experiences, or that you just enjoyed the science. Let us know your thoughts on Twitter at Lonely Pipet. And please share it with your friends in the lab. If you want to join our community, you can subscribe to the Lonely Pipette mailing list or mail us by following the link available on our Twitter profile. You will receive the next episodes directly in your mailbox. How cool is that? Stay tuned for the next show and remember, you might feel like a lonely pipette, but it doesn't mean you're alone. Tips from the Lonely Pipette can help you to do better science. A bientôt! A bientôt! Hey guys, one last thing to finish up. If you like the soundtrack of the show, you might want to know who is the artist behind it. The song is called Lovely Swindler by Amaria, a talented French artist who composes Electro Swing. We are really grateful for allowing us to use it. And if you like it too, the best thing to do is to share it. Thanks again and see you soon.